information in this podcast is meant for the education of clinicians in rehabilitation. This is not meant for personal medical diagnosis and treatment, and individuals should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner. Welcome to our podcast on COVID-19 and dizziness. I'm your host, Ethan Hood. In this podcast, we will explore the relationship of dizziness and vestibular symptoms with the COVID-19 virus. We will explore the latest literature, possible causes, and potential treatment in relation to physical therapy. Joining me tonight is a panel of physical therapist experts from around the country. We have Dr. Karen H. Lambert, who currently serves as the vestibular program manager for the Hearing Center of Excellence for the Department of Defense and Veterans Administration. In addition, she provides clinical care at a private outpatient physical therapy clinic specialized in the treatment of patients with neurologic dysfunction. She earned a master's of physical therapy from MCP Hahnemann University in 2000 and her doctorate of physical therapy from Drexel University in 2014. She received her board certification in the area of neurologic physical therapy from the American Board of Physical Therapy Specialties in 2006 and was recertified in 2016. She is the course director of the Military Vestibular Assessment and Rehabilitation course and teaches assessment and treatment of dizziness and service members. Welcome, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. We also have Dr. Nicole Miranda, who is based in Denver, Colorado. She's an assistant professor in the blended DPT program at South College and adjunct faculty at Regis University. Her clinical background has been focused throughout her career in neurological and vestibular rehabilitation across the lifespan. She developed a special interest in dysautonomia and immune-related disorders and has delivered webinars and presented on the role of physical therapy at the Dysautonomia International's Patient and Provide Engagement Conferences since 2018. Dr. Miranda engages in patient care on a contracted basis through South Valley Physical Therapy in Denver, Colorado. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you so much. Next, we have Dr. Dan Sawyer, who is a rehabilitation clinical specialist of the Medical Surgical Division at Lehigh Valley Hospital in Allentown, Pennsylvania. He's the lead physical therapist in the emergency department and observation unit. His primary interest is in is in helping emergency room physicians diagnose and treat vestibular disorders, aiming to decrease cost of care and improve patient outcomes. Dan helped to establish a novel PT proning program on non-ICU floors for COVID-19 patients, which was recently accepted as a platform presentation at the Pennsylvania Physical Therapy MOVE Conference. Dan is a graduate of the University of Scranton Doctor of Physical Therapy program in 2016. He successfully passed the vestibular rehabilitation competency-based course at Emory University in 2018. Dan is just engaged, just bought a new home, and added a rescue dog to his life. When not working, Dan has a love for the Philadelphia Eagles, golfing, and camping. Welcome, Dan. Thank you, Ethan. I appreciate it. Sure. And finally, we have Dr. Julie Skurzat, who is an assistant professor in the Doctor of Physical Therapy program at Mary Baldwin University. She earned her BS, MS, and DPT degrees from Ithaca College and her PhD in, move in movement science from Temple University. She's a board-certified clinical specialist in cardiovascular and pulmonary physical therapy. Julie's clinical practice has primarily been in acute care hospital settings, including the intensive care unit. It is through her practice that she developed a passion for patients who are critically ill, ultimately leading her down a research pathway to focus on optim optimizing patient outcomes in the acute care setting. Since its onset, Julia has had the opportunity to present on rehabilitation of the patient with and post-COVID throughout continuing education courses. She is interested in learning more about COVID's effects on the body and believes physical therapists and physical therapist assistants are vital in optimizing these patient outcomes. Welcome, Julie. 
Thank you for having me. Sure. And finally, a little bit about myself. I'm Dr. Ethan Hood. I'm an assistant professor in the Doctor of Physical Therapy program at DeSales University, where I teach within a neurological curriculum. I earned my Bachelor's of Health Science and Master of Physical Therapy at the University of Sciences in, Phys in excuse me, at the University of Sciences in Philadelphia. I went on to earn my Master of Business Administration from Pennsylvania State University and my Transitional Doctorate in Physical Therapy from Temple University. I have over 20 years of clinical experience and I cur currently practice in outpatient neuro in the area uh, and my area of expertise includes vestibular therapy, concussion management, balance and falls, and the rehab of neurological disease. I'm a board certified neurologic clinical specialist and geriatric clinical specialist by the American Board of Physical Therapy Specialties. I'm a member of the APTA geriatric and neurological sections. I'm an active member of the vestibular special interest group, helping produce podcasts such as this on various vestibular related topics. And I welcome everyone to our podcast tonight. So as far as right now, when you talk about COVID-19, this is a really a big hot topic as physical therapists from acute care, inpatient rehab, outpatient rehab, and home care are all treating patients with active or late effects of COVID-19 infections or the post-acute sequela of COVID-19 or long-haul COVID. There are multiple names for the long-term effects of this viral infection. There are also a slew of long-term symptoms of this infection like fatigue, weakness, headaches, tinnitus, loss of taste and smell, difficulty breathing, cough, anxiety, PTSD, especially if the person has spent time in the ICU, poor memory and concentration. Also, people with long-haul COVID have demonstrated a myriad of symptoms which they may equate as dizziness. Physical therapists who specialize in vestibular therapy are seeing patients with long-haul COVID with complaints of dizziness. So I asked the group, is there any research citing the specific cause of their symptoms of dizziness and potentially the cause of this dizziness? Karen? So um, it's a little uh, early in the research process to have any great data that specifically links one thing to the next. What we are seeing is a lot of trends that looks at possible uh, true vestibular pathology. We see a lot of case studies that point at autonomic dysfunction. We certainly know, as you indicated, that stress and anxiety always have a, a role and an effect on per, an, an individual's complaints of dizziness and imbalance. Um, so for all of those reasons, physical therapists are the perfect uh, individuals to assess. And while this is a potentially new cause for the symptoms that we see, these patients are not that different from others that we have seen historically in our in our uh, clinics, and we need to do the same uh, approach or take the same approach that we have with uh, the patients we've seen in the past. This true vestibular pathology should always be ruled out first um, as a, an easy um, explanation for why individuals may present the way that they do and an easy uh, way for us to intervene if that is seen. Um, but even those that have uh, more of a stress or anxiety related, there's a bit of um, functional disorders. There are a lot of patient, uh, papers that look at functional movement disorders post-COVID um, and autonomic dysfunction are other areas that, um, that we can definitely intervene with. And again, at this point, the literature is just a bunch of case studies, case series, and some uh, review papers that that so simply just um, combine several of these case studies, and at time will tell. We'll get more robust research down the road. Okay. Anyone else have anything to add? I think I might just add that um, I absolutely agree with Dr. Lambert, and that I think what maybe some of that early research is pointing us to is really 
helping us hone in on our history taking and patient interview process and talking to them about their, their own personal health history, what they were like before they were exposed to COVID, what their um, maybe family and personal immune system history looks like and what their previous just overall body disease state and comorbidities might have been that are recognized and unrecognized prior to the disease. So as far as the literature goes, have we seen any link between vestibular dysfunction and long haul COVID? Anything in the literature at all, even if, the, if it's just a case report or um, a small study? So I haven't personally um, found that a great link in the research myself. Um, certainly, uh, there's a lot of research that uh, points to dizziness in general as a long haul symptom. And again, I will continue to argue that as experts in the vestibular area is we must do our due diligence to, to rule that out. I have de definitely seen patients in my clinic who um, not necessarily as a long COVID symptom, but more acutely have had an acute bout of COVID and have true vestibular pathology. Um, again, it's too early to tell whether this is something that potentially they, you know, having spent some time lying in bed while they were battling their illness, it makes sense that you're more apt to present with some BPPV. And that might've been something that would have happened at anyway, but it's related to the onset of, of um, the, the COVID itself, excuse me. Um, but I haven't seen a true uh, well-written study to date that actually links long haul COVID to vestibular dysfunction itself. I think there is a paper that looked, um, no, I'm just gonna stop. <laughs> I'm gonna edit that out. <laughs> I was thinking more on numbers related to vaccines, not long COVID, so okay. never mind. I saw one paper, it was by uh, Tanadol. It was in the American Journal of Otolaryngology, um, which looked at audiovestibular testing on uh, participants who were recovering from COVID-19 and compared them to controls. So they performed OAEs, audiometry, uh, video head impulse test, uh, VNG and VEMP testing. And they found that the COVID group has statistically significant changes in the high frequency hearing. They had changes in their VEMP and uh, video head impulse test scores compared to controls, which I found quite interesting. Um, but I agree with you, Karen. I agree with Nicole and the rest of the group that when you do look at the literature, the only thing out there right now are case studies or like what you said, a, a group of case studies, which are um, insinuating that there may be a link, but there's definitely not been a, a definitive link yet. Um, to this. We are seeing that, you know, in some of the literature that besides affecting the olfactory nerve, that the, um, the, the COVID-19 infection definitely is, is affecting other cranial nerves as well. So we can postulate that it would make sense that potentially it, it could affect the eighth cranial nerve also. Does anyone else have anything else to add to that? I think I might just add that it's a complicated question because it's a little bit harder for us to test what is vestibular central dysfunction versus peripheral dysfunction. And I think more of what we're clinically seeing is that our patients are having more of a central processing disturbance that could be partly contributing from aspects of dysautonomia, or it could be an adaptation or accommodation based on the fact that they've been sick in bed and not moving around. And so I think it's really hard at this point to point a finger strongly at a specific level of dysfunction, but more of a central processing disorder. Okay. 
Yeah, and that actually leads leads me to the the next question. So perfect segue, Nicole. I appreciate that. So what other what other possible diagnoses can cause what the person would equate as dizziness? And that's the biggest, the hardest thing as a physical therapist is that when we have whether we're in acute care, outpatient, inpatient rehab, wherever we practice, is having that patient who is complaining of dizziness. You know, we have to go through the differential diagnosis process to figure out specifically what system or systems is causing a dizziness. And we know that with COVID-19, potentially, it can affect multiple systems. So what other possible diagnoses can cause dizziness in, the, in this patient population? Yeah, I can kind of speak to that, at least from a, um, an acute care emergency room physical therapy perspective, um, kind of going off of what Nicole was speaking of. Um, Rather than us seeing, at least right now, isolated and, and more specific vestibular findings seen on an exam of, say, like an, a, an acute unilateral vestibular hypofunction, um, where you see that uni, unidirectional nystagmus and you have the positive V-hit testing, um, we're seeing more, more symptoms of dizziness described um, being less vertiginous in nature, at least um, from my standpoint. Um, rather feelings, kind of vague feelings of lightheadedness, disequilibrium, faintness, uh, brain fog. And these symptoms, at least from what I'm seeing and, and what I'm looking at in the literature, um, seem to be a direct result of COVID-19 affecting the central nervous system, um, but also an indirect result of the virus causing uh, vascular damage um, and inflammation as a result. It, and it, it, we're also seeing as a result, like you said, of, of nervous system deregulation um, caused by the disease itself in combination with uh, psychological stressors of, of worry and anxiety, um, whether these were pre-existing conditions that are exacerbated by the diagnosis or the diagnosis itself, um, I think can, can bring out some of these vague symptoms of dizziness. I think also looking outside the vestibular system, a lot of those ACE2 receptors are located in the heart and the lungs. And COVID-19 is causing a lot of direct and indirect, um, has a lot of direct and indirect effects on the heart. And if our patients are susceptible to myocarditis, arrhythmias and or heart failure, um, that's gonna influence cardiac output. So if we're decreasing cardiac output, there's not enough oxygenated blood getting out. Um, additionally, we have to think of that chronic fatigue syndrome, which could lead to some of that dizziness or that brain fog that Dan was describing. Um, and then lastly, absolutely polypharmacy. I think a lot of these patients are coming out um, with dexamethasone and a side effect of dexamethasone could be the dizziness. Um, and then to what Nicole was saying a little bit earlier, we have to consider our patient's baseline functional status, consider what their medical management was for COVID and how that could influence dizziness if they are susceptible to the development of ICU-acquired weakness. I mean, that's going to decrease venous return to the heart, also leading to some of those signs and symptoms like dizziness. Um, and then you tack on long COVID on top of it. So it's really a multifactorial presentation. Yeah, and Ethan, something interesting to consider too is that um, we know that certain diagnoses in, in um, the vestibular system are typically preceded by a viral infection that weakens the immune system and allows things um, like vestibular neuritis to present themselves. 
Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if more research is going to look at whether or not COVID-19 as a viral infection um, is going to precede things um, like vestibular neuritis by, um, you know, weakening the immune system, causing these other latent viral infections to reactivate and cause symptoms of vestibular neuritis. It's a great thought. Great thought, Dan. Nicole, do you have anything on, on dysautonomia potentially as an effect from COVID-19? Yeah, there's a number of papers that have come out um, citing symptoms related to dysautonomia from really pretty much every body system involved. Um, I think something that's really interesting to watch is there's a pretty decent correlation between um, not specifically related to COVID, but historically related to um, hepatitis C, Epstein-Barr, HIV, other viral syndromes that have come out over time have all also been associated with some dysautonomia and an exaggerated immune response. And um, getting back to this kind of the, the person, what their underlying immune system response is like, um, there are some studies coming out showing an aggravated IgE hypersensitivity type one immune response, which is really um, the mast cells degranulating and proliferating. And our mast cells are in every single um, organ of our entire body, including our brain. And so when we get this rush inflammatory response caused by a trigger event, there's a need to shut that response down. Likewise, we're also seeing some papers come out with type two responses that are the more of the pro-inflammatory cytokine reactions. And again, there's a lot of um, blood brain barrier issues involved there where we could be seeing some overlap with, I mean, the networking of the vestibular system is throughout the brain. And so there's a lot of crossover in symptomology between vestibular central processing and dysautonomia. And so I think understanding orthostatic responses to um, like an orthostatic test for our patients that have been on bed rest and what their vital signs are looking like when they're orthostatically challenged is a really huge key as to whether or not they're having signs of dysautonomia. Okay, great. Does anyone else have anything to add? I just want to throw out, um, going off of what Nicole said, the potential for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Um, there are some case studies linking COVID and POTS. And so just going back to the importance of taking vital signs, it may not be a change in blood pressure, but rather the importance of monitoring the heart rate as well. Okay. And I would like to echo that as well. Some of the better papers that I have seen that I look at a treatment approach are mirroring treatment approach after that for, for POTS as well. Um, so I think that's very important to, to look at. Yeah, in terms of other uh, diagnoses or other symptoms that, that can cause this dizziness, I know um, in terms of physical therapy education and what we're doing at, at least at Lehigh Valley Hospital, um, in terms of what I talked about before, in terms of dysregulated, like a dysregulated nervous system, um, something we've incorporated into our COVID pathway at Lehigh Valley um, is a lot of breathing techniques um, for these patients that have anxiety or, um, you know, they're, they're uh, tachypnic um, because this breathing retraining should be addressed to break out of this dys dysregulation that keeps the patients in this uh, fight or flight response, um, which in turn, can exacerbate those symptoms of anxiety, increase their respiratory rate, um, and possibly or potentially lead to some of this motion-induced uh, disequilibrium and dizziness. So we've been doing a lot with um, breathing retraining uh, with our patients acutely. 
Okay. That's a really key point, Dan. And for anybody who doesn't know, there is an amazing um, breathwork program offered through Mount Sinai that people can sign up for that is really helpful. And it's something that patients can do at home and um, therapists can really help be kind of a consultant and an agent to help their patients work through a stasis program. And really tied with that briefly, I think it's important to point out that dysautonomia is kind of a spectrum disorder, which can go fairly easily into a chronic fatigue syndrome, myalgic encephalomyelitis, encephalomyelitis profile. And so being able to parcel out for someone, what is kind of more dysautonomia? What is POTS? There's diagnostic criteria for those that is a little bit gray. Um, and then as well for chronic fatigue syndrome to be able to separate those out and help someone know like how to deal with pacing of activity and not make themselves worse instead of better, I think is a really key point. Okay, great. So the question is, is, is that there can be potentially many causes of dizziness um, for the, these patients with, with long haul COVID. And when we go through the differential diagnosis process, we have to determine essentially what specifically could be causing or contributing to the dizziness. Now, when we go down to different treatment paradigms, are, are there any is there any research out there on the efficacy of PT treatment, depending on what the potential cause of dizziness might be? That I think we have begun to see in some case studies and some case series, looking at both approaches as uh, treating, um, assessing for uh, presence of, of POTS and presence um, for a myalgic encephalomyelitis, like chronic fatigue situation. I've seen um, fairly well-written papers to address each of those. Um, I've seen more literature out there looking at the POTS world, but I think that both, um, both thought processes ought to be addressed. Um, ruling out uh, a more complex involvement like that, obviously just uh, anyone who presents with general deconditioning um, after battling this illness and anybody who does present with, if we do see any signs of vestibular neuritis clearly is something that fits into our wheelhouse. I think I constantly argue no matter what the um, underlying cause that will eventually be discovered, I think physical therapists are the ideal individuals to assess for anybody who's dizzy um, from any cause because we do have knowledge uh, that touched on to so many different areas um, and and if it does not fit perfectly into our area of comfort I think we know who to refer to and to reach out to our colleagues if it appears to be more of a cardiovascular issue that has not been addressed um, so absolutely I think we're starting to see some good case studies come out that talk about treatment for these folks that's awesome and Karen speaking to what you mentioned about PTs um, being very good at kind of helping to diagnose some of these vestibular disorders. I know I've talked to a lot of physicians and they kind of say it's, it's the bane of our existence when we come down, like to see a dizzy patient, like, please come down and help us. Um, and I, and I wonder if a lot of this research, when we think back to the beginning of COVID, um, a lot of the PT clinics were shut down. A lot of the audiology clinics were shut down. I don't think people were actively trying to leave their home if it was a symptom that you know, it was dizziness and a lot of people were worried about, you know, more of the respiratory illnesses, the breathing, the shortness of breath, the fevers. And if they were having dizziness, may, maybe they weren't seeking the help or maybe it wasn't available because the clinics were closed. And I'm wondering if more data is going to come out because people are going to have more access to uh, vestibular testing going forward. Okay, great. 
So we, we kind of crossed over into one of the other questions about uh, treatment recommendations that, that we may have. So, and I know that, that Dr. Lambert was talking about, you know, obviously if, they're, if they are presenting with some sort of vestibular neuritis type of pathology or vestibular hypofunction, there's definitely some resources out there that can point us in the right direction. Like the, you know, the, the vestibular hypofunction clinical practice guideline um, that you can easily, easily access on the neuropt.org website that can kind of point you in the right direction of what's the appropriate exercise regimen to follow. Now, besides uh, having a vestibular pathology, which has been well-researched and, and documented in terms of how to, to treat, with some of these other possible causes of dizziness, are there any other good recommendations that you might have for treatment? Um, for example, for POTS, do you have any recommendation of where to look for um, good information for possibly treating POTS? So there are two different protocols that are widely used for treating POTS. One is referred to in the comment in the community as the Levine protocol that was, um, it came out of UT Southwestern. Dr. Levine um, produced a protocol, it's a research-based protocol um, that is a graded exercise um, return to activity program that um, has then been further developed into more of a clinical practice protocol by the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and it's freely available on the Dysautonomia International website. Um, the Levine protocol, any healthcare provider can get by contacting UT Southwestern's Western's exercise uh, office program, and you can get a copy from their administrative support line, but they won't issue it directly to a patient because they feel strongly that patients need to be supervised through the exercise program. Um, but basically, it really kind of mimics what would be like a concussion return to play graded exercise protocol, but it starts in a more recumbent position so that the individual is not challenged against gravity and is able to maintain um, control over the excessive kind of inappropriate, so to speak, tachycardia that happens with um, an uh, standing postures. And so a lot of times people start on rowing machines or recumbent bicycles, or even just trying to be in a swimming pool to eliminate gravity. Any other suggestions or recommendations? I think if it's a vascular issue um, that's leading to some of the dizziness, I mean, of course, the TED compression stockings, abdominal binders, and then doing more incremental positional changes um, while monitoring the vitals and doing more exercises in supine or sitting before changing and going to the anti-gravity so we can facilitate venous return and decrease um, the intensity of those symptoms that the patients are could potentially feel. Great. Anything else? Are, 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 is anyone out there uh, using different screens to screen for uh, depression and anxiety so we can uh, possibly uh, refer this patient population to other practitioners for assistance? The APTA has um, a COVID outcome measure set and not specifically for depression, but for quality of life, they do have the Promise Global 10. Um, so that could be one way to target some of those. And, and where would we, we get that information, Julie? It's on, the AP, it's on the APTA website. Just on the APTA website? Okay, great, great. 
And Nicole, do you have any good resources uh, or recommendations for dysautonomia for resources? Yeah, dysautonomia International has a lot of resources available on their website, um, and I'm happy to provide you some links for that. Um, okay, great. I also would just add that I think a lot of these patients, when you're talking about the anxiety and depression, um, they're at least before the vaccine and maybe even some still now because some people are, are timid about getting vaccinated after being sick and they're afraid to leave their house to go into the clinic. And some of them are physically unable to drive yet and to get into the clinic. So I have found telehealth, telemedicine, that access to be really, really helpful to get people started and to establish um, therapeutic alliance with your patients to be able to get them um, to be able to trust you to know that you can help them figure out how to get out of bed and how to get up against gravity. I'm a really huge fan of using zero gravity lawn chairs, like a tilt and space chair in the house to where an individual can get out of their bedroom. They can maybe be in a more centralized place with their family and maybe even get outside if they're really having that much trouble, just getting started to regulate their um, autonomic nervous system and just their general like homeostasis of their body to be able to kind of get out of a dark bedroom, which we know when our patients are struggling with central dysfunction can really be problematic. Okay, great. So Julie, thank you for the, uh, the link there. So mm -hmm. what, what I'll do, I'll, I will post some of the links that you provide. I'll post them uh, with the podcast as well. So people have access to it. So besides just listening to the podcast, they can use some of those links. Any other treatment recommendations from the panel? Anything you've done with some of the, this patient population? Dr. Lambert? I was just gonna um, echo, I think my general um, statement um, or line of thinking throughout this that I think um, rather than um, being in, in our own heads as clinicians, focusing so much on the question marks and the things that we might not know yet, that we return to the skills that we know that we have and, and that treatment uh, starts with performing a, a very appropriate assessment, which we know how to do, um, an appropriate bedside evaluation, absolutely listening to our patients and finding out, as Nicole has mentioned, what their premorbid activity level is and what their expectations are, listening to their timing and their triggers and things that ease and aggravate their symptoms, just as we do with all of our patients. Um, and then keeping in mind very thoroughly this differential diagnosis that might include a lot of the autonomia and utilizing these resources that have been shared so far with the group, um, if that's not something that you're already comfortable with and seeking other resources to help guide you. At this point, the body of evidence um, and research out there does not allow us to have, as you mentioned, a clinical practice guideline. Um, and But uh, to add to that, I would strongly suggest and recommend that anyone in the audience who has a patient that they take through this process and feel that they utilized one tool or another and had great success with it to do your due diligence and, and write um, good research for us. Because we there are a lot of case studies out there. Um, a lot of them have a lot of weaknesses that challenge the benefit uh, and ability to generalize. So if this is a patient population that you're seeing, um, that's definitely a need that we have is to get good literature out there. Okay, great, great recommendation, Dr. Lambert, thank you. Just going off what you said, Karen, I think um, I just echo taking a very thorough subjective history. Um, and I'm a firm believer in knowing where the patient has come from and where they're going because so, yes, they could have COVID, but we broaden our differential if we understand that they came from the ICU, if they were prone, if they were on ECMO, like, we really have to like 
expand our differential by understanding that. And if we don't ask those questions along the continuum, then we could miss something um, and just treat the symptom instead of the diagnosis. So. Excellent point. Um, I was reading one case, one case series looking at BPPV um, after COVID diagnosis. And again, it's difficult to, to the, the paper didn't necessarily, um, it was difficult to definitively connect the two. But one comment that was made was at, uh, increased um, frequency of um, horizontal canal BPPV in the patient population that had been in the ICU and likely been proned. And is there a different than, difference than in the presentation we would expect? The N for that paper was quite small. In time, we might realize that there really isn't a difference, but I found that interesting and something that I would not have otherwise thought about. So I think your point is excellent. We haven't talked about the vaccine um, at all yet. And I think another thing that we're seeing is with some people that are having a transient vestibular flare after the vaccination. Um, and I, I think it's really interesting because I think it still gets to this personal history, underlying immune system biases that people might have and not know about. Um, and so I think they get kind of a transient flare that can be quieted down. It lasts longer for some than others is what we're kind of seeing at this point. But what we are also seeing is that when people do need some support, that things that we use all the time in vestibular rehab are really helpful, like antihistamines and um, just things to help offload the inflammatory response that might be happening. And we do have to be cautious about recommending over-the-counter medication use and having them check back in with their physician or providers, depending on what their personal history is going on. Um, but we are seeing some um, conversation in the literature regarding, you know, brief vestibular neuritis. We're seeing some people that are looking and smelling like they might have a little bit of a vestibular migraine after vaccines. And so there's, again, still a lot more literature that needs to come out to point us in the right direction. But it's like, like Karen said, it's not something we don't see all the time every day. It's just a different trigger causing the event. That's a great point, uh, Dr. Miranda, and, uh, and that leads me to the, the last question was that, is there any link between dizziness and receiving the vaccination? Uh, most more importantly, looking at the, the two mRNA-based mRNA vaccinations. I don't know how much of a link. I know um, the typical symptoms following the uh, COVID vaccine are, are the ones that we commonly hear about, the generalized weakness, the muscle spasms, the headaches, the chills. Um, some people report fevers. Um, in the one study I was looking at, I think there was about 9% of patients reported uh, dizziness, just generalized dizziness, and it wasn't broken out into um, dizziness or, or vertigo. Um, but then 3% of those patients actually reported vertigo-like symptoms. So um, it's it's not a symptom that is is jumping out as the one that's reported most often, but it's it's definitely there. And it's something to be aware of so that you can educate your patients on those things. I, I agree. I think too, there was a, there were two recent papers published looking at healthcare workers and their self-reported um, symptoms post vaccine and exactly the numbers that you had mentioned, depending on which vaccine um, that, that they had had um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 8% dizzy and then 2.5% uh, uh, with vertigo symptoms with the Pfizer vaccine. And I think it was a little higher, almost 15%, 14.58% um, with the Moderna vaccine with 3.47% uh, with, with the complaint of vertigo. So the, the numbers are there. The actual vertigo complaints are quite small post-vaccine, but they are things that we need to be aware of. Okay, great. 
Anyone have anything else to add? I think something we might not have touched on, we may have touched on a little bit. Um, I think it's just important for students or, or practicing colleagues that, um, that aren't aware or they're aware and, and we're not really checking it too much is just to understand that COVID-19, it has been linked to coagulopathy and um, different blood clots. And um, so I think it's important to look, like we talked about before, dizziness can be coming from a lot of different sources. So taking a thorough history, but also with that understanding that it could cause the coagulopathy, looking at things like the D-dimer levels and their platelet levels um, and coagulation markers, especially in the event of somebody presenting with dizziness. Um, because again, it could be a central source, it could be peripheral source. And sometimes certain central um, findings can present like a, a peripheral disorder. So it's just, it's good to take a thorough history and look at those lab values and look at their past medical history and the risk factors. Um, just to make sure that you're, you're treating, you know, treating what you should be treating and referring what, referring out uh, when it's appropriate. Dan, that's a good point. And I don't know how much you've seen of this or any of you have seen of this, but for those that you suspect um, dysautonomia, it is really important to have them seen by a quality medical provider who's versed in dysautonomia to make sure that they screen the, the risk level and whether or not patients need to be having a cardiac MRI to looking to be seeing if there is any um, like organ damage or disease process that has been instigated by the virus rather than just treating somebody thinking that they have what I'll call vanilla dysautonomia. Um, it can be just like we refer to vanilla vertigo. Vertigo can be a lot more different flavored than vanilla. So, and dysautonomia can act the same way. So there is a lot of, um, even within the, the diagnosis of POTS, there are subtypes of POTS and they needed to be managed and treated differently pharmacologically and non-pharmacologically. So really getting an actual diagnosis with um, medical partners is very important. Okay, great. So I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Skirzat, Dr. Miranda, Dr. Lambert, and Dr. Sawyer for uh, joining us tonight. And I'd like to thank our audience for joining us on our podcast on COVID-19 and dizziness. Please join us for additional vestibular-related podcasts from the Vestibular Special Interest Group. Thank you. Have a good night. Thank you for listening to this interview, which has been brought to you by the Vestibular Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. For more information on the vestibular SIG, and the ANPT, please visit www.neuropt.org. Thank you.